Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. No, you all are not beautiful people because you're really only in my dream and I have terrible dreams. (laughs) I am very, very grateful to the committee that was generous and kind enough to invite me here to share my experience, strength, and hope. I'm very, very gratified to be here in Tulsa, Oklahoma to help you celebrate your 29th anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous here in the state of Oklahoma. Words always are inadequate for me to express feelings. But I have discovered a rule of conduct for myself that enables me to do what I hope to do, and that is to say in words how I was like when I drank, what happened, and what I've been doing to stay sober. The rule of conduct is never start off ex- expressing gratitude. If I do, I'll bawl like a baby and everybody will be upset and I won't say anything anyway. <laughs> uh, Clark was very generous with himself. He made himself available and we did share time together. And this is part of the debt that I owe to the world. I was born in 1926. And I accepted all that the world had to offer me, and I was incapable of doing anything really constructive with it. And it was not until October 13, 1954, in my total surrender, in my failure to die, that I was given my rebirth, and I recognized that I owed something. Not only did I owe to my God, the acceptance of the gift that he had given me to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe it to the world for this faith that I've taken up on this earth, but I also owe to man a debt that I can never repay. And I made a promise that I would so live that if I touched any man, he would be better for having met me. I'm always done trying to get into my lead a, a, a little bit interestingly, you know, to, as I just said, I was born, this is self-evident. <laughs> and uh, and then I, I sit and I hear other people's lead and seeing like they just flow into their story so easily. And so last night when I went to my room, I spent an hour and a half opening this lead. <laughs> But I'm always reminded that I'm just me, no more, no less. And I always remind me of the little missionary gal. She she really wasn't inspired to save souls. She was just an unfortunate woman, a young woman, who didn't do so good in her hometown. And uh, she figured, well, maybe she became a missionary and got uh, marooned on an island with a young missionary man he might propose or something. But um, her luck ran like mine, <laughs> and instead of a tropical island, her first uh, tour 
was in the darkest part of Africa with the reformed cannibals. <laughs> and we also identify in as much as we were both we were both cowards and she was scared to death. And this particular morning she walked out in, onto the compound and there sat a great big fat cannibal stirring a pot. And she looked at the cannibal and she said, uh, Mr. Cannibal, is it true that you people no longer kill people to eat them? And the cannibal stirred a little bit. And then he said, Yes, Mom, it's true. We no longer kill them. But if you have an accident, you won't be wasted. <laughs> And I'm here because I don't want to have any accidents. <laughs> because I am an alcoholic. And I'm very grateful to yet be a member of the St. James Group in Cleveland, Ohio. We have a perfect group. That is, uh, we are normal, healthy alcoholics. We have the most disorganized group, most unorthodox group, and all the other groups are constantly saying St. James is going to the dogs. <laughs> I love it. Because there I see with home, or it was there that some darling old goats. You know, I heard someone mention age yesterday and um, about being too young to be an alcoholic. I, I never heard anything like that until later, thank God. I was 27 years old, and I was accepted by these darling old men. And I mean, these cats were old. Old! <laughs> the youngest man was 40. <laughs> but they reached out with this warmth and sincerity, and the only sensation that I was able to register at the time was feeling, and they made me feel welcome. And they made me feel safe. And they gave me hope. But I had a fear that if they wouldn't find out the truth about me and put me out, maybe they could become my people. Because all they asked of me that Wednesday was, do you have a drinking problem and do you want to do something about it? And I could answer those questions. Yes, I had a drinking problem. And yet, I want to do something about it. And they told me to come back. After my first meeting, they kept telling me to come back. I went back, but not because I learned anything at that first meeting, but because hope was alive. And I said, if they don't find out the truth and put me out, then just maybe. Many things have been given to me since coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. The first gift that was given to me was time. For no one told me that in a certain length of time I would have to learn any specific thing. They also gave me the gift of freedom of choice. They said, what you hear in these meetings that you can't accept, please do. But what you can't accept, someone says, throw it away, someone else says, no, put it on a shelf. You may want to go back and get it. And I accepted these gifts without recognizing what they were because I soon recognized that I was getting very confused. 
I, I will say here, I'm very hung up by the words. I, I hear many words, and I, I don't always know whether you mean what I mean by the same word. And I hear the word new. And new to me does not necessarily mean the person that's attending their first meeting or first week or first month, not necessarily the first year. I stayed new for 18 months because it took me that long to feel a part of this program. And I can yet identify with any new person, and I talk to the new and confused person, the person who's not yet felt comfortable with us, who cannot say that I'm at home when I come with you, for I was very confused. At my very first meeting, the confusion began because the nice little man that got up in front and he talked and made everybody laugh and I didn't understand why they were laughing because he was saying terrible things and I was very sick. And the only thing that I remembered from his talk was that he had said that in one time in his life he had been a Pullman porter and I wakened up in the state of Washington in the bed with the midget. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why he said it. I come from a world where these things happen. But you told them on other people. You didn't tell them on yourself. And this confusion grew. Because in every meeting this happened, a nice man and even women would come up front and they began to say the most terrible things about themselves. And I would sit there and try to figure out, was it true? And if it was true, why were they saying them? So I reach out today for the new and the confused. And I said, come with me and keep coming back because I didn't learn fast in this program. In the second chapter, I think it speaks of the spiritual retardation that comes about through our excessive use of alcohol. I was very grateful to know that I was retarded by alcohol because it took me so long to feel the part. I was sober 10 months when another gift was given to me, the beginning of open-mindedness. Often we who are comfortable here will use words to a new person without recognizing <coughs> they are incapable of understanding. I've heard them tell the new man, come to the meeting with an open mind. And I remember those 10 months when I didn't know what it meant to have an open mind. One night I had to make an effort to get to my home group because the man that usually picked me up forgot me. This was not unique for Joe, God rest his soul. Joe could forget anybody. And I, I didn't feel affronted or hurt. I only felt full of myself because I'd gotten a neighbor boy to walk me around to my home group meeting. And I was all puffed up and I sat down in a seat and then a stranger began to talk about me. There were about 40 people at that meeting that night. And, you know, I wasn't much of an egomaniac. I knew that 40 people knew this cat was talking about me and this man knew he was talking about me. And I said, there's suffering. The only thing I ever remembered about that man's person was that he spoke with a very thick foreign accent. 
and he said that his brother owned a bar in my neighborhood, the Dixie Bar. But he also said that some of us would come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and because we could not identify event for event, we would begin to feel as though we did not belong. And that was the way I was feeling. I could not identify with those men who had gone to jail, with different cars and blackouts. I, I, I couldn't understand how those women who loved their children, neglected their children, didn't buy their milk, had lost their children. I, 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 I said, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic because I had not done these terrible things. In fact, I could not have done them. I would not have done those awful things. And yet here this stranger knew I was thinking this. And I was saying, maybe I shouldn't take the kindnesses of these dear, darling old men. Maybe I have no right to stay here. And I was very confused. And I went home that night, and I definitely had a thinking problem. Because I couldn't understand how this stranger knew that I felt as though I did not belong here in Alcoholics Anonymous. But as I was thinking, I also remembered how everyone had always told me to keep coming back. Particularly in those groups where my, the men of my home group would take me, and it would further confuse me, because the very thing for which I was so ashamed that I was a drunken slut of a mother and a woman, they would brag about it in these groups. We'd go out and they would say, oh, this is our new baby, she's an alcoholic. These cats are crazy. You don't tell people. You keep it quiet. And I remembered how these people had said, come back. But I also recognized that I had missed something along the way. There must be more in those meetings than I've been able to hear. And so I went back to the meetings determined to learn how to listen. And I went back and I did not listen to the terrible things that these people were going to say. I knew they were going to say them. They always did. And so I wouldn't listen too good for that. I, I would say there's got to be something else. And then I was able to hear how they felt as they prepared to go out to drink. And yes, I knew that feeling, the anticipation, the looking forward to something good. I never went out looking for anything bad. <clears throat> And then I also heard how they felt the morning after the night before. And oh yes, I understood that. Oh, the remorse, the shame, the guilt. I could understand that. And I was sober 18 months. And some women came into St. James. And I was going to tell them how I drank and how I was staying sober. But they weren't interested. But from the time that I was made aware that I belonged here, I heard many things, and I heard a man who has since passed away use the words drink and trouble, drink and trouble. And because they gave me the gift of time, I knew that I had time to find out when had I began to have trouble. And because they shared my shame. They shared my life. 
I was able to look into my life and recognize that I had always been in trouble. All of my life. And because of you, I became a member of the human race. Sitting in the meetings, I began to feel that I was not that much different than the rest of the world. In fact, it became kind of a comfort to know that, yeah, I'm an oddball, but I'm not the only oddball. I'm not alone. I was warmed by your stories and comforted by your strength. And I was grateful for your experiences because it enabled me to recognize that from the time that I reached the age of reasoning, and my mother made me understand that not only was I to be responsible to her, but to her God, I was in trouble. Because I knew that I was going to fail. I became a defeated. Fear of failure was my constant companion. And because I feared, I resented. And I always felt very sorry for myself. I didn't coin the phrase generation gap. I lived by it. My mother was 42 years older than me. And I said, this is why I cannot understand my mother. And she cannot understand me. And anyway, my mother had some wild idea that little girls grew up to be young ladies. <laughs> now, I don't know what young ladies are ever permitted to do. For I always seem to have been doing the things that young ladies don't do. And even when my mother wasn't there, my brother would tell me, you can't do it. You a girl. And nothing was more repulsive to me than being a girl. I heard if a girl were to kiss her elbow, she turned into a boy. I got a couple of sore arms, but I never managed to kiss my elbow. <laughs> I share this part of my story with you so that you can feel with me why I now accept today. But not only am I an alcoholic today and shall be an alcoholic until I die, I have always been an alcoholic. I have no quarrel with anyone's story. I accept that some did have a social period of drinking and crossed an imaginary line into alcoholic drinking. But for myself, I settled it with myself long time ago that I am and always was and shall always be an alcoholic. I'm grateful for those who found that alcoholism is a disease. I accept it because it makes it not quite all my fault. I once felt that I was the embodiment of all evil. Everything of and about myself that was bad was my own fault. I do not accept that today. I have not accepted it for a long time. Because I remember not only in that Lord's Prayer do we ask for only our daily bread, but it says deliver us from evil. And there must be an evil somewhere for us to be delivered from it. I'm grateful to know that it isn't all my fault. You see, I've got other things wrong with me besides alcoholism. I'm allergic to strawberries. I'm allergic to raw, uh, to eggs. I'm allergic to fresh uh, onions. I can't eat salt as freely as other people. And I, as I accept these things about myself, I accept my alcoholism. I have no quarrel with it. And there is no shame because I'm a human being. And I live in the world of people. And today I get a lot of help in being comforted by the fact that I'm an alcoholic without shame. 
Because I look out at this world of all the conflict, all the turmoil, and it's out of that world that I was bred. And I think it's pretty egotistical of us to say it's all my fault that I'm an alcoholic. When we are products of our society, our culture, our heritage, and what make any one of us think that we are going to emerge clean, pure, lily white, and holy? I belong to this world. It, take, it took me 27 years of unhappiness to crawl and slither into Alcoholics Anonymous and be told that you're just people. You're just one of the multitude of people. And I'm not letting anybody take me away from where I belong, a member of the human race. I'm so grateful that Clark said, these are my opinions. I think he said I have strong convictions. What he was trying to say, she's an opinionated female. <laughs> I accept that, too, because I am. Because there was a time when I didn't have any opinions. There was a time when I didn't have me, because I did not accept me as a child, and I grew up in a world that didn't teach me how to accept me. The world said, be like me, and I tried to imitate, and in imitating, I died. I never developed. I believed it could have been done from the outside, and so I tried to walk as, talk as, and be seemingly as those in my neighborhood whom the women called good, but these were all still human, and, and just as... They looked good for a little while. They failed before their neighbors. And the same women who gave them the title of being good tore them down with scorn with poop, but made them think they were better than their betters. So consequently, I was always having to change the way I walked, the way I talked, the way I looked. And anyway, you know, um, little girls have big ears. And I overheard my mother and her friends talking. And they all said I look like my daddy. Well, for those of you who don't know, my daddy was a preacher. <laughs> now, everybody's heard jokes about preachers, but believe me, with my daddy was no joke. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was unhappy when she found she was not my father's first wife, but his fourth. <laughs> and she was downright miserable when she found the child she was carrying at that time, my brother, was not going to be his firstborn, but his thirteenth. <laughs> so my mother decided she wouldn't be his wife anymore, but circumstances had him living in the same house. And even in 1926, they have springtime. Well, you know what happens in the spring. The sap starts running, the birds start, the bees start, mama started, and daddy helped her. <laughs> and in December of that year, there was an issue brought forth called Esther. <laughs> I always felt like a biological accident, that if it had never been a spring, it never would have been a me. <laughs> This is why I cannot uh, feel or belong to my mother or brother, because I wasn't wanted. I wasn't longed for, looked forward to coming. And when I was only 13 months old, my mother and father very sophisticatedly set out and agreed to disagree. 
Uh, well, it wasn't quite that quiet. My daddy ran off with the deacon's wife. <laughs> so if I looked like my daddy and acted like my daddy, that meant that I was irresponsible. I didn't like that idea. Um, but it, it, it helps when you're young and frightened and resentful and unhappy and miserable to find somebody to blame. For a long time, even after coming into this program, not a long time, but I'm sure a couple of years, and to me it was a long time because I was living those couple of years one day at a time, I still thought that I had an exclusion, an exclusive on having an unhappy childhood. But I listened. And I've heard every family situation possible here in this program. And two things emerged more often than others. You know, um, most of us come from good Christian families. And I've decided this isn't a wholesome attitude. It breeds alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing is that we each had an unhappy childhood. So I begin to recognize that each one of us was born into a family situation that was established, and no one inquired of us what changes we'd like to make with the establishment. And so I had to recognize that I'm just people, born just like everybody else. I have no excuse. I cannot blame my mother or my father for my inability to cope. I have no why. I can only relate the facts as I see them today. And today I see that I always was a pathetic little girl due to circumstances. When I got a high school age, due to the way my mother lived, I was afforded a private school education. My mother didn't know that in school there were social, racial, and economical differences that only made me more certain that I was not only going to fail her, but my benefactor. And, uh, you know, someone mentioned uh, since my being here uh, about the uh, ingeniousness of alcoholics. I have never met so many grade school geniuses anyplace as I've met an AA. <laughs> Either they were straight A's in grade school, straight A's in junior high, and then they flunked out of college. <laughs> I emerged from high school with two scholarships. One to a non-sectarian college with boys, and one to an all-girls college out in Minnesota. The little bit I've told you about my mother, you know where she sent me, out to the snows of Minnesota. <laughs> That's where my eyes begin to make known the fact that I one day would be blind. I could not go back to college after my first year. The doctor said they did not know. They yet do not know why I'm blind. My mother said it was just being ornery. If I'd have went where those boys were, I would have been on scene. She might have had something there. I don't know. <laughs> I will state here that I am not blind either directly nor indirectly due to alcohol. I'm blind because I've got one area of being unique. Where in most eye people's eyeballs get hard, mine got soft. 
The doctors at our Western Reserve Lakeside Hospital do not know why this happened. Of course, that statement could keep me drinking as long as I would have wanted to. Today is just a point of statistics. This is just my record. And this brings me to what I am compelled always to say. And I do not take a personal vendetta against Joe. I tried to warn him that I'm not fighting with him. I grant him his right to feel and say what he must feel and say. But I also accept my right to say and feel what I must say and feel. I do not accept that line in the book that states that it is harder for a woman to make this program than a man. You see, I drank as a woman, and I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous, an unmarried female, five foot four and a half and blind. These are just statistics. They're incidental to me. And until they can measure effort, I will not accept that because a man is six foot two, with his original wife and grown children and living parents, that he's having an easier time with his program than I am. Each one of us in our own way arrives in Alcoholics Anonymous as we are, and this is the way we are to get sober. I do not feel that I am due any compliment because I'm sober because I'm a blind woman. If you will think a little, no compliments, just wondering why did it take me so long to get here. Every reason that one might give me for being wonderful because I'm sober, that is a reason why I never should have drank. I mentioned words. I do not feel that I am handicapped in the sense that most people use the words. Remember I said, do you mean the same thing I mean? I'm aware that every living human being has a physical limitation. I have not yet met anyone who would not have something removed from their person, if they could. I do not like the phrase affliction. I am no more afflicted than anyone else. God will never put any more on anyone than they can carry. And I am blessed to have my affliction or handicap on the outside. Everyone here has been more than generous, and everyone wherever I go are more than generous to share their sight with me because they can readily notice that I cannot go get around comfortably in unfamiliar places. But think of those people who are handicapped on the inside and how many people do not rush to help them. They are the ones that are afflicted because their handicap is hidden. I not only speak of those who are mentally handicapped, who have the burden of brain damage due to one thing or another, fever when a child, or some the inability to cope. But I think of all those people who have those hidden things. They look good on the outside, but they can't dance all night like I can and breathe well. They have a respiratory problem. They can't eat at 2 o'clock in the morning and go to bed and sleep well and not have nightmares. They've got gastritis or something else. I am a blessed child. I find it very difficult to feel that any one of us is to be more complimented than the other. I feel that we are all miracles, living wonderful miracles, revealing the real love of God. I know why Christ said, I command ye to love one another, because he has loved us so much.
but I've given you my statistics as I arrived here, and I can accept them today, but there was a time when I could not accept them. The question was asked, how can a blind woman become an alcoholic? I can answer that quite easily. Drink. <laughs> but what I think they were wanting to know was how did I get the drink? Well, now that's another answer. <laughs> you see, when I was 16 years old, I bounced into my mother's bedroom and I said, Ooh, dear mama, today I'm sweet 16 and I haven't been kissed. My mother said, get a job. <laughs> this upset me. You see, I'm more like my daddy than I realize. <laughs> Work and I never quite got along. And so, you know, I've heard many men stand up here and speak of the jobs for which they were fired. I never got fired. I'd get tired and I'd just quit. <laughs> so I, I never had the big role uh, to go out and, you know, do it up. I've learned many things in AA or through AA, and I once didn't like women. I thought they were necessary evil, you know, to bring children into the world. But as I wasn't going to sire any children, I couldn't see the necessity for quite so many women. <laughs> but I've come to have a deep appreciation for all women, not only the alcoholic but the non-alcoholic woman, because I'm aware that you too have a soul, and if your soul has been frightened, it takes a long, long time to get well, that we are all victims of alcoholism. But I have a particular admiration for the alcoholic woman who can say with truth that she worked and earned the money she drank. Now, there's something wrong with that statement. It's first fascinating that she wanted to work. And then to drink it up. <laughs> I, I, I paid for my booze, but not with money. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I love the communication that's going on here. <laughs> yeah, it was read in the, in the preamble that there are no fees or dues to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. But believe me, I paid and paid in full for the right to stand and say that I'm an alcoholic. For I did everything that was necessary to qualify for this program. I paid with the coins of my youth, the coins of my sanity, and the coins of my unborn sanctity. I gave all to it. I didn't like my mother being so old. But I owe to my mother's age the fact that she didn't think about drinking the way Maybe some modern mothers might feel. For she didn't feel that drinking brought down any shame or stigma upon the family. For she was born and raised in a time and a place where drunkenness only meant that if you didn't work, you didn't eat. And someone had to help with your responsibilities. And so I could drink and come home. And my mother never divorced me. My drinking never caused a breach so wide this program couldn't bridge it. My mother often would say to me, though, you must be crazy to drink that stuff and get so sick. For I always got sick. You could judge the degree of fun I'd had the night before about how sick I was the day after. <laughs> and my mother would let me go 
to where my first play brother Jimmy was playing, where she knew Jimmy would see me home. But Jimmy learned early about my capacity, and he told the bartender, don't give her anything but beer on me. I, 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 I didn't like beer. You see, I was introduced to alcohol through bourbon and a party. And after three drinks, I had everything I wanted. Of course, I did get drunk that first time. But the memory of that one golden moment that happened after my first three drinks was there. It is true, I drank because alcohol gave me something. But alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And alcohol lied. It told me I could have it again. I never did get it again. But it was powerful enough to lure me back. And it kept saying, you can get it. And I was so baffled. I was so bewildered. Because I never wanted to get drunk. I didn't know why I reached for the next drink. But I had to come here to learn. But in those days, I was a bourbon drinker. But Jimmy would only afford me beer. But in those days, too, being young, I, I was skinny. You know, the last time I was out this way, I just started to diet. I, I made a, a terrific effort, and in 16 months, I did lose 84 pounds. I later had to put some of them back. I got too slim. In fact, uh, some people have even called me skinny yet, and I've been educating them to the fact I am not skinny. I'm sexy. <laughs> <laughs> You see, I'm in my foolish 40s, and I can afford to say things like that. <laughs> but in those young years, I was just plain skinny, and I didn't have any asset, I thought, but I did. I had a shapely pair of legs, and I don't know when I recognized it, but I used it. I found if I went to the bar and sat on the bar stool and crossed my legs, I don't know whether you guys would come in there looking for dimes, gum wrappers, or cigar butts. But their eyes would get as far as my knees, and they'd say, what are we drinking? Well, we'd start to drink. <laughs> I knew that when the band closed up, Jimmy would waddle over looking like a male gorilla, and he'd say, sis, are you ready to go home? And the poor buyer would say, is that your brother? And I'd say, uh-huh. And Jimmy would scold all the way home. He'd tell me, you're going to get us both killed. You can't go on playing your little games and not paying the price. But by that time, if I'd have had another drink, and so what Jimmy said was just so much noise. I had to be sober in this program two years before the truth of what Jimmy said came through to me. I could have gotten us both killed. But I didn't mean any harm. I only wanted to get there. I could not have told you where there was, but there was a real place for me, and I was always reaching out for it, because I was in constant pursuit of something vague and mythical, but it was real, and if I got it, everything was going to be all right. I know today that it was the lie. The lie that alcohol whispered to me after my first three drinks. You're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're charming, 
You're successful, you're sophisticated, you're everything you thought that you weren't. But I never got it again. I only got drunk. And I couldn't understand why, because I never wanted to get drunk. I wanted to get there and find it. At the age of 19, I got married because I wanted to be happy. And I married a physically beautiful young man, but he didn't make me happy. And in seven years and one child, I knew that it was all right for me to divorce him because he was not going to make me happy. It is true that I did ask Clark, why do you all seem shy about mentioning your time of sobriety? Because it's a part of the gift of freedom of choice that was given to me. When I came into this program, people with 15 years would say, oh, I'm sober 15 years, but it does not mean anything. I, I, I didn't know. But I went on living with them, and they said it. But now that I've got 15 years, it does mean something. I'm grateful for every one day that has that comprises this 15 years. For not only have I not had a drink and not suffered in that way, but I am not making the same mistakes today that I made last month, last year, five years, ten years ago. And I have been given the freedom to be so removed from my past that I have gotten objectivity. I can view it now as a mature adult. And I'm grateful for that. And I would give it the gift to you that I enjoy of every day of being sober. The gift of complimenting yourself. I listen hard out there in that world. And I aware, I'm aware that we here are yet victimized by those old convictions. It seems to be unsophisticated to compliment oneself. I could identify with Terry when he said he didn't know how to accept the compliment because the world doesn't teach us to accept them. But I've learned that I give all the praise and glory to anything good in me to God and if you are enjoying it with me, I can enjoy it with me too. I stand before you in the pride of my 15 years because without God and principle of this program, I would not have it. And I think I would be affronting a generous God not to enjoy every moment of it and to let the world know that something different has happened to me. How can we grow through attraction if we don't show that there is something different about us? Not only something celestial and transcendent and above the norm, but living down here on earth. You know, the new person coming in it is awed by a, a spiritual awakening. If anybody would have told me that you're going to have it, I didn't hear that first part of the 12 steps for almost, oh, I don't know, 11, 12 months. And nobody told me that it had to happen. So I reach out to you new people and say, enjoy every day and enjoy it. And you needn't have to apologize for it. The pride that's growing in you comes out of the knowledge that 
you have enough left to accept the gift of God, the miracle of being given the privilege of coming into this program. And I do enjoy it because, as I said, I've got objectivity now. Once I took all the responsibility for my broken marriage, once I said, and I yet say this, that I did ask of a mere boy what I should have been asking of God, that is to make me happy, but I do not take all the responsibility in my broken marriage. Now think with me how I was at from 19 to 26, a drinking alcoholic married to a man who did not drink, he did not smoke, he did not gamble, he did not even openly chase women. Now, you agree I had to divorce a righteous bastard like that. <laughs> feel kind of chagrined with new people come in and they're yowling, when am I going to get my mate back, whether it's a man wanting his wife or a wife wanting her husband. And I say, cool it, baby, you don't know, maybe next week you won't want them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad I got rid of mine before I got sober. I'd hate to spend the rest of my life trying to make amends to him. <laughs> Get it straight, gals. I'm not against marriage. I'm just against them. I love the idea of being married. In fact, every first of the month, I swear, I got to get me a husband for the next month. <laughs> but apparently, the good Lord doesn't think that's a good reason for me to have a husband, so that's why I haven't got one. My bills get paid, and I don't think I want to be married quite as bad as I did when I have all my unpaid bills. But, uh... <laughs> but now, I do love men. And you who've met me before are quite aware that I do love men. I think if the Lord made anything better than a man, he kept him in heaven for himself. <laughs> but I never meant any harm when I drank. I, I, I never meant any harm. This is why I must pay the debt. I cannot make direct amends to all those men for whom I must have been an occasion of sin. But I can so live today that a man will be better for having met me. And I'm not ashamed of my place in the world, that I was created second, and that I'm here just to help the man do what he wants to do. And I do sponsor men. In fact, I have, I, I don't know how to put it, you know, words again, uh, more successes with men than women. They're not my successes. But the men go along with me a lot further than the gals, and I can understand that. It took me 13 years in a women's conference for me to stop being afraid of more than two women in the room at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so I granted them their rights, and I tell them of this so that maybe it won't take them so long to know that each one of us, we're so afraid. I went out so often with my little money, and uh, I found that in my area, in the knoll, <laughs> that if you talk kind of quiet, the fellow thought you were stupid. So I'd go out with my little money, and some nice man would inevitably come over, and he'd say, hi there. And I'd say, hi. <laughs> and he'd say, well, what's your name? I always told him, 
Liza. <laughs> and he said, well, why the, where are you from? It really didn't matter, but I mostly picked on Georgia. And he said, well, when did you come to town? I always told him, he has did it. And he thought he had a live one. And boy, <laughs> I'd be so nice and shown up. I was going to go home with him and do everything he wanted me to do. Um, but what the poor man didn't know, Liza was backed up by that old conniving Esther. And Esther never wanted to pay the price. But I did pay the price. Because there were those times when I went out looking for it, determined that I was going to get it. And I went out with complete abandonment. And all I got were scars. And more shame. And more fear. And no, I do not tell of those times in my league. Because I love you. And I'm aware that anyone that says that I am an alcoholic have got those unhealed scars. They've got the wounds that are there when at moments like this, they're touched because I have it. Every time I get to this point in my lead, I'm aware that that too was me, that I was there. And it's because you helped me to accept my past and forgive myself that I now can identify with every man or woman who says that they happen to be an alcoholic. I have no difficulty feeding with you when you speak of being in jail. I have been there with you. And because of your generosity, I know how why you ran down the alley with the wine. Because you couldn't wait to get to the rule. I've been there. I'm with the woman who wanted very desperately to keep her children. But because of her being an alcoholic, she lost them. I didn't lose my little boy after divorcing my husband because the women's bill do not take children from their grandmothers. I don't know what would have happened if Tommy had not had a grandmother. But I know why these things happen. Because you have permitted me to accept the whole of my past. I do not have to skirt around, qualify, or rationalize anything that I have done yesterday. I have no shame for yesterday. I have only gratitude that it's all behind me. For there are no more lies left in the bottle for me. I drank them all up. I drank up everything. I drank up the pretense, the forgetting, even the remembering. I drank it all up. I had blackouts, and I wanted to die. They tell me that I had suicidal tendencies. Oh, yeah, I, I did try twice, I think. Again, um, I'm trying to be objective about this. And, but in the light of the honesty I feel today, I, I don't think I wanted to kill myself. I think I wanted exactly what I got. A lot of attention, and for a little while I was queen. Everybody had to cater to Esther because we don't want her to do this terrible thing. In fact, I can say you'd better believe me. I would have been the most surprised person in hell if I'd accidentally died. <laughs> <laughs> There again, I'm grateful that the men of my home group did not say to me, you're too young to be an alcoholic. 
For I arrived at the age of 27, old and worn out, wanting only to die. Death was the only thing that looked good to me. And all they said was to come and try. Try to do as you'll see us doing, and do as we'll ask you to do. And you two can learn to live one day at a time without buying the necessity for taking a drink. And I would have told the women all of this which I've told you, but they didn't want to hear it. One gal was in three weeks, wanted to know what was the spiritual part of AA. Well, now, um, I had said the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, uh, rather loudly, in fact. I wanted everybody to know I was raised right, but, um, <laughs> to discuss it or, um, no, I, I hadn't done that. Another lady was in eight days, asked me when was she going to get peace of mind. I didn't even know whether I had a mind or not, whether it was peaceful wasn't important. <laughs> but I did think at 18 months I had a whole lot going for me. I hadn't had a drink. And I wanted these women to stay and, and, and have this too. I had said that I brought nothing into AA with me but a destroyed soul. But I did bring a desire to obey. I had never obeyed in my life. To me, obedience is submitting my will to that of someone else's. But as my mother was a very strong person, I knew that if I openly defied her, she'd make me unhappy. And so I was a performer. I understood exactly what the word phony meant to me when I heard it in this program. For my whole life had been a lie. I had never been a good daughter. And as I never accepted the authority of my mother, I was incapable of accepting the laws of God's nature or man. But as this man guaranteed me that I could learn to live without drinking, I wanted to obey him. And I obeyed the men of my home group, and I did everything they told me, including asking of a higher power in the morning to keep me sober. I did it very perfunctorily, however. As I would get out of bed, I would say, keep me sober. <laughs> and because they said they have the grace to say thank you at night, when I'd go to bed, I'd say thank you. I didn't address these prayers to any particular deity. I took it literally a power greater than myself. But after 18 months, I wanted to pray. And I knelt down of an afternoon, and then I realized I didn't know to whom I was going to pray. Here in AA, no one had given me their God. They didn't give me the privilege. They gave me the duty to find God. For in the third step, it says, make a decision to turn our will, your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him. I had no previous understanding of God. And that afternoon, I remember that I had asked and I was sober and I addressed my prayers to the God of my sobriety. But let me hasten to tell you with the recognition and acceptance of God, I was not free from the responsibility of being a young unmarried woman. None of my defects of characters were removed, not even one shortcoming. What happened was that I understood a phrase that I'd heard around the program, don't cut corners. I asked that I be able to help these women stay sober, and all the women promptly got drunk. 
But I went back to the source of my strength, the old timer, and I asked, why did God say no? Why didn't God want me to help those women? And each one listened and in turn said, God didn't say no, for you are sober. The only way you can be available to help somebody else is you stay sober. And the only one that you can truly sponsor is yourself. Time passed and a few of these women came back and they expressed their joy at finding me. But their joy was not to be compared with mine. For again, the security that was building for me through the members in this program was reestablished in that again the old timers had not lied. Never did they lie to me. And this was good. For I needed so much. For I didn't learn fast. I was sober four years before I heard the phrase mental sobriety. I'm sure it was spoken in my presence, but I didn't hear it. I had often felt something emulating from the men around me and then the women too. But I didn't understand what it was, and I tried to get it. But when I heard the words, the words mental sobriety, I knew this was what I had not been consciously aware of trying to do. It also helped me to understand the 11th step, why we're asked to seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. For that particular time in my life, I was planning a change, and my first reaction was, what will my mother say? And I was chagrined, because here I'd accepted sobriety, the most precious gift in my life from a God who loved me, and yet I was concerning myself with another human being rather than asking, will this be pleasing to my Heavenly Father? But I went on for two more years resenting my mother. I heard in this program that if you resent, you'll get drunk. I said, I will not get drunk. They just don't know my mother. <laughs> I had to see my mother broken in spirit and body and sick in my home and weeping in my son's bed to grant to her her humanity. In less time than it will take me to tell you, I recognized what my mother was. Just a little old lady. And I knew that my mother loved me, and I loved her. And I knew that my mother had always done the best she could at the time as she was. And she'd never asked me to make a monument of her. I had done this. And I also knew how I had cheated myself for six years. For every time resentments were discussed, I got uncomfortable because I knew how I was feeling about my mother. And I made a vow to myself. I would never, ever again let anyone or anything be more important than what I could get out of this program. And so I do not resent. The men in my home group told me the first night, don't think, drink, and I never do. I have never had an argument with myself over whether I would drink or not, for I always lost them in the past, and they told me, don't think, drink, and I told me, don't resent. I was asked, how do I not resent? Because, oh yes, I'm human, and I'm not always, oh, full of enthusiasm and zest for life, and I get tired, and I get angry. You know, I, I used to sit and wonder, how could those big men say it like that? 
a big guy would always say, I got a temper, like he's got an exclusion on something. Hell, I got a temper too, I just can't see how to run. <laughs> and I do get angry, I get very angry, in fact, I get mad. But I don't suppress it. I look at it, I recognize it, I am angry, I am mad, I am disappointed. And I also recognize that I have a lot of emotions that are not pretty. But I look at them and I live with them just as they are. I don't have to lie to Esther today. I am not trying to live up to any one standard for me but my own. I accepted the gift of being a human being from you. And I don't have to take all the responsibility anymore. For I have got the freedom to kneel down and ask God, as I understand him, to forgive me when I'm wrong. And I'm wrong often. But I don't have to stay wrong. I've got the words from you. And I use the words. This is how I do not resent. I also accept all the words in the 12 steps. I have no hang-up over my defects of characters because it says we become, we were entirely ready, ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. And I'm certainly ready to be perfect. I've been ready to be perfect a long, long time. <laughs> and it's not my fault. If they're not gone, it's the good Lord, because I'm ready to have him remove them. Now, if he don't remove them, it ain't my fault. <laughs> Oh, the freedom and joy of living in this program, literally, because I take it literally. It's just so wonderful. I have put more burdens on Esther's shoulders that don't belong on the earth until sometime I just would, could cry for the new person because I didn't understand for a long, long time. And I want you to know to come and stay. Keep coming back and stay with us. And you too can learn to live without the necessity for taking a drink. You too can recognize that regardless of the circumstances, you're better off sober. I've lived with some of those circumstances. For when I hear the word, we share our experiences, I don't think it means only our drunken experiences. I like to share my sober experiences. I've had some wonderful ones, but I've had some tough ones too. For I had to accept that my 17-year-old son had to be married. And they said, yes, you're a good AA because the mother of an only child just don't do things like that. It wasn't I was so good. It was just pure mathematics. Most only sons do not have one living child and at the age of 17 have two girls pregnant. <laughs> this cat had a problem. <laughs> And I was told I was a good AA that because from February of 1962 until January of 1965, I accepted that all the adult members of my family died. My mother, my brother, my uncles. And they said, you're a good AA, Esther, because I stayed sober and I did the best I could as myself. But I wasn't a good AA. I was just blessed to be in an area where I had a sanctuary. For in Cleveland, I'm either talking to an AA on the phone, one's having coffee in my home, or I am preparing to go to a meeting with a good AA. I wasn't a good AA. Because when I came out to Texas in 1967, I was exposed in the world. 
I lived in what the world called a sociably acceptable family, and my inventory changed. One meeting a week was not enough to sustain me fighting constantly for the principles that are here. And so as I did want to stay and see my nephew be graduated, I stopped fighting openly, but I found that I had not changed, that I was basically the same little girl who could not accept herself being a little girl. I could not accept the world still being ugly and mean. I didn't like it that they could yet pull their skirts aside and look down their noses, and because they can't understand how people can act like that. And I realized that I wasn't a good AA, that I needed good AA. And I went back to my one meeting out there. And you know, around AA, if you talk a lot, they think you want to work. <laughs> and they got me to more than one meeting a week. And I made a vow that I would so live with my program that whenever again I'm exposed nakedly without the sanctuary of you, but I will be able to hold my standard. And I've been fighting tenaciously ever since, and I've had to fight. Because in September of 1967, my son went to prison. And I rushed back to the old timer, the source of my strength, and I said, what am I going to do? I have never lied to my son. I've always told him, if you go to jail, I will not come. And each one listened. And each one said in turn, Esther, in order to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. My sobriety, oh yes, but the love. The love of God as I was living and enjoying it, and the love of God in you as you were sharing with me. And I was able to go see my son. Even though I cried so hard the first time I visited with him, he had to remind me as to which one of us was in jail. <laughs> I learned to go back without the tears, but with your love. And in September of 1968, my son came home. He came home to love. And often my son yet comes to me and says, Mama, put me back together again. We have no problem with the generation gap because we both recognize that no parent and child can be of the same age. And because of you, I don't have to lie to my son. I always have to tell him, though, life of itself would not afford me to be able to talk to you, Tommy. But because of the principles of Alcoholic Anonymous, I can recognize fear. Oh, yes, I know what fear is. I can also recognize self-doubt fear of the future, and we try to live one day at a time. My son has emerged as my favorite charity. He was only 23 February of this year, and not only does he have to live with himself a young man, he has five children. We had four little girls up until December, and we got a little boy, and we loved our little boy. And we are now trying to learn to live with the joy of loving this little boy. Because it was only in February that my oldest granddaughter went to her daddy and said, Daddy, don't you love us anymore? We have to learn to live with a lot of things. And we're learning to live with the joy of having a boy. And the joy of having four little girls also. I have a daughter-in-law. My son has a wife. <laughs> Uh, 
Uh, I'm a classic uh, mother-in-law. Anything my daughter-in-law would say negative about me, it's true. <laughs> but I've got a hope for that gal. The Lord just let her live 90 years. She's going to be all right. <laughs> She's just going to take time for her. <laughs> But I'm happy, and I'm glad, for I know that words are real. For in our close steps, at the very last seven words, I've been given the key to this program. For it says to practice these principles in all of our affairs. The name of the game is sobriety. The way of the game is love. And I try very hard to remember there's a three-letter word, all of my affairs, that all. That's the word for me. Whereas I've already shown you it's so easy to be a good AA in an AA meeting. But I live in a world of people. I live in a world of human beings. And I don't dare ever again to play God. I played God and cheated me yesterday. I want to just be me and accept and enjoy the love of God today. I held our central office because I thought you could stop me from drinking. And everyone from that day until this have said no. Come and share. Share our experiences, our strength, and our hope. And you too can learn to live. And the word is live. Live the life with zest and joy and warmth, understanding, kindness, and generosity. All the things that I once thought only existed in books. And you too can learn to live without ever finding the necessity for taking a drink. At night when I go to bed, I always say thank you, God, for Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, let me thank you for God. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.